May 10th, 1940, the Nazis, under the order of Hitler, invaded Holland. A few days later, Nazi soldiers burst into the home of my wife's grandmother, Corey. They demanded at gunpoint she sew their ripped uniform pants. It appeared Hitler would take over the world. The French had collapsed, the Dutch overwhelmed, the Belgians surrendered, the British army trapped, fought free, and converged on a fishing town, Dunkirk. Behind them lay the sea. If the Germans crossed the channel, all would be lost. This little island would be easy pickings. It was Britain's darkest hour. They needed a man who could infuse courage within the nation. Wars are not won by fleeing from the enemy. Such a man, if he existed, would be Britain's last chance. In London, there was such a man. Winston Churchill. He said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He stood tall, throwing his, his V for victory. He did not pitch the nation a wish dream. He told them the worst and hurled it to them like great hunks of bleeding meat. 25 days after the Nazis broke down Sarah's grandmother's door, Churchill stood before the House of Commons in the Parliament and he bellowed these words. I quote, Though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen and may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, and we shall never surrender. End quote. Church, we have arrived at such a moment in our text. On a much smaller island named Crete, an invasion has taken place. Satan's false teachers have penetrated and are working their damning message from the beaches to the hills. Families are being turned upside down. The gospel is being distorted. God's church is being pushed back. His people spiritually wounded. Healthy doctrine fought hard, but it's now on the run. God's name is being mocked. And by all appearances, it looks like Satan has already taken over. It's the island's darkest hour. They need a man to infuse courage within the nation of believers. In spite of the possible consequences, they need someone to stand and fight. Because spiritual wars aren't won by fleeing from the enemy. And healthy doctrine isn't established by keeping quiet. Local churches aren't formed by staying on the defensive. They need a gospel war hero. Such a man, if he existed, would be the island's last chance. In Crete... There was such a man. His name, Titus, his plan of attack, threefold. First, unmask the mercenaries. Second, unmask the motive. Third, unmask the message. The Apostle Paul, who planted all these churches on the island with the help of Titus, has left the island. 
And it's not that he's not concerned. He's, he's very concerned. But he has his own wars to wage. He writes Titus and he says, If the island will be saved, you're the man to do it. And so we are about to peek into the island's war room. An underground bunker with a massive map of Crete. And there Titus with his long wooden stick will move figurines around the island map to see best how to implement Paul's schemes and plans. Let's look at this gospel war plan first. Unmask the mercenaries. Notice verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now we are immediately struck by the fact that there are many that need to be unmasked. Titus is going to be unmasking the enemy for a while. They are a force all over the island. You will know your enemy because they will be, verse 10, insubordinate. They will have no respect for authority. They will not allow themselves to be reined in. These men are a law unto themselves, claiming a direct pipeline to God. Their favorite verse is 1 Chronicles 16, 22. Touch not God's anointed. They dance around spewing their heresy and singing a song by the great theologian M.C. Hammer. You can't touch this. <laughs> when anyone attempts to speak authoritatively into their lives, they bolt. They will have none of that. Verse 10, they will also be empty talkers. The phrase in the Greek literally means they peddle big words with vaporous content. Big words, big talk, very little meaning, very little substance. They are masters of intrigue. They're slick, they're suave, they're persuasive and pleasing. But their teaching lacks health-giving doctrine. What they say has no lasting spiritual value. One author said it like this, You can always spot those who don't teach the truth by the way they so beautifully say absolutely nothing. Their smooth words have no spiritual life. Shakespeare said it this way, They're full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The verse also says they'll be deceivers. Literally deceiving your thinking. Who are they? The verse answers, those of the circumcision party. Titus, when you pull off the mask, you will discover these islanders aren't of the communist party. They're of the circumcision party. They are extremely religious, yet dangerous. In other words, Titus, they'll be wearing your uniform. As Jesus says, wolves in sheep's clothing. Ministerial mercenaries. This rebellious group taught circumcision was necessary for salvation. They wanted Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians. And Paul says, Titus, walk your uncircumcised self up to these men and rip away their mask. Rip away their lies. Show them publicly how their teaching is an assault on the gospel. And show them publicly how their teaching is an assault on your salvation. Notice... Verse 11, they must be silenced. Paul goes, Godfather on them, all Don Carleon. Their voices must be silenced. Titus is to adopt a zero tolerance policy regarding teaching that deviates from the scriptures. Muzzle the mercenaries.
stop them. Shut them up. The present tense of the verb points to a continuous action. Keep muzzling them. Warren Rearsby writes, Whenever God sows the truth, Satan comes quickly and he sows lies. False doctrine is like some cancer. It enters secretly, it grows quickly, and it permeates completely. Unless it is attacked before it has a chance to spread. And a sharp rebuke is the love of the surgeon's scalpel. As a surgeon cuts away diseased and infectious tissue that threatens the health of the body, Titus must cut away this toxic teaching. John Calvin said, pastors ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves. Now, I typically on a Sunday will save all of my applications to the end, but I'm not doing that this week. With each expositional point, I'm going to apply it. So let's apply this first instruction in the battle plan, unmask the mercenaries, and here's the application. Silence false teachers on your island. Silence false teachers on your island. Now, in the long run, what is, what is Titus and Paul's method for dealing with false teachers on the island? The word for in verse 10 is a, it's a hinge pointing us forward and backward. This section on false teachers and the previous section on appointing elders are connected. When false teachers increase, the most appropriate long-term strategy is to multiply the number of true teachers who are are equipped to refute the error. Now allow me to uh, brief you soldiers before going into war. Not every Christian leader that's wrong is a wolf. We will differ on some secondary issues with other churches. Maybe a solid PCA church on infant baptism. Maybe some seeker-friendly churches on philosophy of ministry. We will differ with some people on music styles and private prayer language and congregational church government versus elder rule. Other secondary issues like we spoke about last week. Those are not damnable heresies. But denying the exclusivity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the trinity, the bodily resurrection of Christ, preaching a works-based gospel, a prosperity gospel, a therapeutic moralistic gospel, these are heresy. And I just want to make sure you know who the real enemy is. Because not every bad doctrine is equally dangerous. And it's the pastor's job to point out the wolves to the sheep and it's also the pastor's job not to allow the sheep to say that another weak and fledgling sheep is a wolf. So you need to know how these true, genuine, false teachers on our island like to operate. They want to drive you into isolation, drive you away from the local church. They don't want you to test their teaching by your local church elders. And sheep don't do well in isolation, they need a flock. And they need a shepherd. So don't assume you know best. There are predators in the pulpit and they chew up sheep. Let me just pose a practical question. How might we silence these false teachers? God does not tell us to go around and cut out the tongues of every false teacher. Now I can think of a long list of people who would serve society better if their tongues were cut out. But 
That is not my job. So let's look at this in three categories. How should the global church silence false teachers? How should the local church silence false teachers? And then how should you silence false teachers? First, how should the global church silence false teachers? This is simple. Take away their platform. Don't put them on the radio. Don't put them on TV. Don't subscribe to their YouTube channel. Don't listen to their podcast. Don't invite them to conferences. Don't speak with them at conferences unless you're rebuking their false gospel. Don't give them a classroom in seminary. Don't publish their books. John MacArthur was sitting with a Christian publisher and he said to the publisher, why in the world would you publish Benny Hinn's book, Good Morning Holy Spirit? A, a book that in its original context had nine members of the Trinity. I'm not even sure you can call it Trinity. There's nine members. Had nine members of the Trinity and assorted other strange fantasies. And he said, why would you publish that? And the Christian publisher answered, oh, we publish everything. Stop publishing the books. Now, how should the local church silence false teachers? We don't give them a small group. We don't permit them to be members. The job of the shepherds is to police all of this. We stop people from interrupting the service and giving their opinion. Now, we've never had that here, but eventually someone will stand up and say, I've got a word from God and I need to speak. And then that's when I'll look to Dan and say, please cut out their tongues. <laughs> No, I'll probably say something like, are you an elder? Does this church recognize you as an elder? No, you, you're not speaking. God told you. He would have told me. He didn't tell me, sit down. <laughs> so here's, here's, I think, the best way to silence false teachers. Overpower their heresy with truth. We silence them with the truth. Now, here, here's another one that um, we don't like. We demonstrate how healthy theology leads to holiness. How a healthy theology leads to holiness. Bad theology equals bad morality. You see it on the island. That's what verse 16 is all about. Bad theology leads to bad morality. You see it in the secret lives of these false teachers. Thirdly, how should you silence false teachers? How should you personally silence false teachers? Well, you have an obligation, just being a Christian, to give a voice to some teachers and to silence others. When your friend says to you they're reading the latest book by Joel Olstein or Rob Bell, or someone who died and went to heaven and came back. When your friend tells you they're podcasting Creflo Dollar, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer. When they tell you they're studying with the Mormons or the JWs, or pursuing Islam, or Scientology, or witchcraft, witchcraft, which is blowing up among nurses now. When they say they are attending a palm reader, or a Tony Robbins conference, you have an obligation as a Christian to speak up. False doctrine will ruin their lives and send them to hell. So, so don't even, and I've done, I have done you a misservice in this, because I always joke about one particular false teacher. Don't even allow yourself to joke about these false teachers. There's nothing cute or innocent or whimsical about false doctrine. Philip Keller was a shepherd. He raised sheep. He's also a believer and he wrote books about why God must have chosen the analogy of his relationship to us as a sheep to his, as a shepherd to his sheep. 
In one book, he pointed out that the behavior of a band of sheep under attack by a group of wolves is often blind fear. They, they will stand tied to the spot watching their companions being cut to shreds or acting like they do not hear or recognize the carnage going on around them. And friend, that is you when you don't speak up because you want to avoid an awkward conversation. Unmask them, don't retweet them or buy their books, unmask them. Now, little, little side note, don't be obnoxious. Don't do this in a pious social media way. Do it in a private, loving way. Unmask the mercenaries. They're all about rebellion and lies. Secondly, unmask the motive. Notice as verse 11 continues, they are upsetting whole families. Literally, they're home wreckers. The word translated upsetting is the same word used of Christ turning over tables of the money changers in the temple. Everything was literally turned upside down. False teaching is not a victimless crime. People are hurt. Families are hurt. Homes are hurt. Paul says, Titus, be hard on false teachers because damaged doctrine damages people. Verse 11 continues, by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're hired guns, motivated by money. Their bank accounts are filling up. They're dripping with designer clothing and jewelry, flying their private jets, which we know were so abundant on the island of Crete. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean that pastors shouldn't be paid. We know clearly from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, that they should. But pastors shouldn't be getting rich off of God's work. Peddling sound doctrine isn't a good way to sell books, draw a crowd, or make money. It's not. If you're getting into the ministry to be rich, then you are not smart. Now, these wolves might defend their lifestyle by saying that since they preach prosperity, they above all others should live prosperously. Stephen Davey says, It never ceases to amaze me what these false teachers get out of the Bible and what their followers allow them to get away with. Now, on top of all of that, these teachers are receiving monies for, for preaching what? A false gospel. Not the, not the genuine gospel. A false gospel. In modern vernacular, we might call it drug money. In other words, you're, you're paid, but you, you're getting the money the wrong way. False teachers aren't driven to build up believers. They're driven to fill up their pockets. And then notice verse 12. It, it seems as if Paul switches from false teachers to the islanders. So he's dealing with one group, and then he seems like he's switching to deal with another group. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul calls to the witness stand one of, Crete's, one of the Crete's heroes from the past. He's actually one of their philosophers. Paul calls him a prophet, but it's tongue-in-cheek. He's not, he's not God's prophet, but he is speaking truth. The church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Jerome, Chrysostom, and Augustine all identified the author of this saying as the 6th century Cretan poet Epimenides. Now, 6th century B.C., that's correct, B.C., not A.D., 6th century B.C., Epimenides. 
Plato dated him 500 years before the birth of Christ. So Epimenides points out that the unsavory reputation of these islanders is known all over the world. They are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. I mean, I feel like Paul is describing my roommates in college. <laughs> Eugene Peterson's paraphrase says, They are liars from the womb, barking dogs, lazy bellies. Now let's unpack each phrase. First, liars. Um, Polybius, which was a second century, right after Christ, Christ was first century, second century Greek historian, said Cretans are tricky and deceptive characters. Lying was a celebrated art form on the island. In fact, in Greek, Crete, the word Crete was slang for lying. To Crete was to lie. If you tell your child, stop creting, you creted, it meant you lied. Stop lying. Next, the phrase translated evil beast is literally dangerous animals. Crete was like a vacation island. It was an island famous for having no dangerous animals. But the joke around the world was that the absence of wild animals on the island was supplied by its human inhabitants. Where no actual wolves were present, Satan invaded with human wolves. Next phrase, lazy gluttons. These nasty brutes live to eat feeding their face at a furious rate. They were self-indulgent, overfed, without discipline or control. In other words, they wanted, they wanted to do nothing more than to deceive people into supporting their work while they live lavish lifestyles. Davy said on the island, the game of religion had, become, had begun. These greedy hucksters sold their message so that they could live the easy life. Now let's just take a step back from the text for a moment. Does it not sound unnecessarily harsh? Such a characterization of an entire nation of people is painting with quite a broad brush. I mean, it definitely wouldn't pass as PC here. Definitely not politically correct in the States. Imagine someone tweeting this. Imagine someone tweeting this. All fans of the Detroit Red Wings are liars from the womb, barking dogs, lazy bellies. We know it's true, but saying it is another thing. Imagine someone creating a meme that says, people from Connecticut, ugh, with their unstoppable liaria, savage animals, fat hogs. Imagine saying that about a group of people. And now let's get a little more serious here. What about saying that about a specific ethnic group? All white people are. Oh, all those Native Americans are just. All African Americans are. All Hispanics, they're just. See, I like the phrase much better before I started to put it into our culture. The Christian conscience is very uncomfortable with ethnic stereotypes of this kind. And you may defend Paul by saying, well, he's just quoting someone else's words. Paul would never say that. Verse 13. Paul says, this testimony is true. Paul, you dirty dog. How dare you? Now, let me attempt to ease the shock here. First, Epimenides, he gets off because I can talk about my people like that, but you can't talk about your people. I can say things about my own people that you can't say. For instance, Alistair Beck can say Scotsmen are stingy, but I better not say that. Uh, Sarah and I went out to eat with the president of a Southern Baptist seminary. I won't name which one. 
But he asked uh, where I grew up, and I told him, and he said, I received a speeding ticket in that county. And I'm like, man, after my own heart. But I received a speeding ticket in that county, and I called a local lawyer, and he said, just drop $200 off by my office before the court date, and I'll take care of it. So he went in, he walked in, there were three redneck lawyers standing there laughing. Then I'll never forget sitting across the table as he was spitting onions, and I had to slide my plate. I'm like, I can't even eat this anymore. (laughs) Talk with your mouth closed. But um, I'll, I'll never forget him mimicking these men in our county, my county. And he made them sound unintelligent, backwoods, clannish, which was all totally true <laughs> if I was saying it. But I can talk about my people. Don't you dare talk about my people. I can talk about my people. In college, a boy from Alabama told Sarah in the lunchroom, all Canadians are just stupid anyway. Sarah stood up, slammed the chair on the floor and said, this is probably your first time you've been out of your trailer park. (laughs) My uh, precious Proverbs 31 wife. (laughs) Stereotypes. We all have them. And you probably have them about your hometown. But Paul better not talk about your hometown. So that's how Epimenides gets off the hook. How does Paul get off the hook? Well, he gets off the hook because he isn't saying this is true of every person on the island. He's saying, this is key, the adage about the Cretans are true of these false teachers. They are living up to the stereotype. Paul actually never switched topics. He didn't talk about false teachers and then the islanders. He's staying on task. It's always false teachers. Now, let me apply this point to unmask the motive. Here's my application. Defend your island against those who have unsavory motives. It's just something about islands that seem to attract con artists. This week I was reading about George Parker. He was one of the most audacious con men in American history. He tended to target recent arrivals to Ellis Island. He'd pay off the ship's servers for information about which families had money to spend and might be looking for some real estate opportunities. As soon as the boat would dock, he would swoop in with a get-rich-quick scheme, and it was just too good to pass up. He actually made a living selling New York's public landmarks to gullible tourists. On more than one occasion, he posed as General Grant's grandson and sold Grant's tomb. He actually sold the original Madison Square Garden. He even sold the Statue of Liberty. And you might ask, how is this possible? Well, he set up a fake office. He produced impressive forged documents. He, he appeared very legit. His favorite object to sell was the Brooklyn Bridge, which he sold more than 100 times. He convinced his marks that they would be able to make a fortune by controlling access to the bridge. On more than one occasion, police had to remove naive buyers from the bridge as they were erecting toll barriers. <laughs> His scams became the basis for the popular saying, well, if you believe that, then I've got a bridge to sell you. All over Crete were religious cons involved in a religious scam where people lose both their money and their spiritual equilibrium. It's one thing for a victim to potentially lose his socks and shoes. It's another thing entirely when a scam causes people to potentially 
lose their souls. It's one thing for a scam to send you into bankruptcy. It's another thing for a scam to send you into hell. Spiritual cons are hovering around the island of Crete like vultures. But I don't want you to think they're not hovering around your island as well. And you have to realize that on the surface, you want to buy what they're selling. Faulty teachings are attractive to your desires. That's why you keep defending that one particular speaker or that one particular church by saying things like, oh, it's not, it's not that bad. And you're not the only one. Christian bookstores and the average church's small group curriculums are filled with this stuff. You can't have a product unless you have a market. That is that's business 101. Crete has false teachers because they have a market for false teachers. Hopkinsville, Oak Grove, Clarksville, Fort Campbell, Nashville, they have false teachers because our hearts pander after what they're peddling. Their teaching caters to our sense of achievement. We always leave feeling better. A con artist gives you what you think you want, but in the end, it's empty promises. Health now, money now, greatness now, no problems now. As one scholar put it, if people got everything these empty talkers promised, why would you ever want to go to heaven? Heaven would simply be anticlimactic. See, this is what happens when Christ is not the ultimate goal. In the West, in the West, I fear we have a, a, a pressure to be only positive. And you can't always be positive. One, Titus is not letting me in this book, the entire series. But you can't always be positive because there are wolves among the sheep. Have you noticed that the Bible is never very nice when it identifies false teachers? It doesn't say, everyone's viewpoint is valid. Everyone should be able to say what's truth to them. I mean, what would it hurt if there are varying opinions in, in the church? Remember, Paul's age on the island, it was pluralistic as well. So this is just as offensive then on that island as it is on our island. You know why I'm not giving you a list of false teachers on your way out? Because they change daily. New ones are landing on our island every week. And you need to grow in your faith where you can identify them. A careful study of any teacher will bring to light his or her true colors. We simply have to take the time, listen carefully, and weigh their words on the scales of God's holy word. And some of you are thinking, Kyle, that's the kind of intolerance I would expect from you and the Bible. Well, there's nothing remotely kind about a doctor tolerating cancer in your body. You may want a good report from the doctor. But more than that, you want an accurate one. Step one in the war plan was unmask the mercenaries. They're all about rebellion and lies. Step two in the war plan was unmask the motives. It's all about money and fame. Step three, unmask the message. Notice verse 13 as it continues. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Titus had a ministry of rebuke, a godly contentiousness. Pastors must do both, comfort and confront. They must have a ministry of reconciliation and they also must have a ministry of confrontation. And this isn't easy and it isn't pleasant, but it's essential. 
when the integrity of the gospel is at stake, we cannot run and hide. We must fight and stand. We will defend this island. We will fight on the beaches. We will fight on the hills. We will fight in the streets. We will fight to the end. We have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But we will not flag. We place an emphasis here on doctrine. And when someone says Christianity should have less doctrine, it makes absolutely no sense. It's like saying Christianity should be less Christian. We have a body of doctrine, a robust faith, and, and it's been passed down, and we will protect it. <laughs> People say, your, your church, oh yeah, I've heard about your church. You're the, one that, you're the church that's into theology. Yours isn't? Verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now this is key and this is what a lot of you um, younger aggressive type miss, okay? Our goal in rebuking is redemptive. It's not to win an argument. It's not to rip face. It's not to prove your point. It is for the false teacher's salvation. Hope comes through rebuke. Save the enemy from hell, not just put him in his place. Now, what exactly were these false teachers teaching on the island? Well, verse 14 enlightens us. Verse 14, delighting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. These teachers were subtly interweaving certain Jewish myths and man-made traditions as necessary for a full Christian experience. They say what saves you is faith in the work of Christ plus following these oral traditions, plus obeying these special diets, plus these extra practices. Basically, these false teachers wanted to turn Christianity into another Jewish sect. And on top of all of that, they're also appealing to extra-biblical teaching, extra-biblical, outside of the Bible. And a religious con man will always come up with some extra biblical thing to tell you what is necessary for you to become the super Christian. And I imagine they were spreading this false teaching from behind the pulpits, in small groups, weekend conferences. I mean, they handed out, they had outlines, they had study notes, they had little three wing, three ring black binders. They are peddlers of theological pornography. Extra-biblical teaching opens the flock up to all sorts of error and spiritual danger. The uniqueness of Christianity is that God has spoken. We're not waiting for him to say more. It's not like God's in heaven saying, Oh, bro, I forgot to write one thing down in the book. This is a one thing I forgot. What am I going to do? Let me give it to this whack job over here, this weirdo. And then he'll tell my people. False teachers were saying, if you want to be truly pure, you need to abstain from this, 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 and this. You think of false teachers often like living licentious lives. These false teachers were living not so much. They, they were given these rules, avoid this, 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 and this, and this. And Paul says, that's not how sanctification works. Sanctification doesn't work by ignoring the Bible. So Paul quotes this little maxim in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So these teachers had a false understanding of purity. To them, it was external instead of internal. 
If you're a believer, then you're clean in this verse. Everything is clean to the clean-minded. If you're not a Christian, then, then you, are the, you are the unclean, the defiled, the, the dirty-minded, if you would, in this verse. Nothing is clean to the dirty-minded. If you're not a Christian, even your good deeds are not pure. I, I don't care what the good deed is. Every breath you take is sin. That's why it's, that's why it's a desperate situation for you to repent of your sins and run to this, this Christ. <laughs> The verbs in verse 16 give the impression that there was a testing time and these teachers have proven to be unfit. Notice verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are, and Paul's here, notice, notice what hearing false teachers should produce or conjure up in you. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The threefold war plan, unmask the mercenaries. They're all about rebellion and lies. Unmask the motives. They're all about money and fame. Unmask the message. It's all about myths and fables. Now let me apply this point. Unmask the message. Be ruthless with your own soul when it attempts to add something to the gospel. Be ruthless with your own soul when it attempts to add something to the gospel. Tim Chester helped me with this. When Paul says to the clean, all things are clean, he doesn't, of course, mean things that are clearly forbidden in his word. He's speaking of those things which have been ritually declared clean by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, like a, like a pork sandwich is now clean to you. It's not, it's not a food with an X on it anymore. You can eat it. Now, consider how this principle might apply to issues we face today. For instance... I have been guilty of saying that guys who play Xbox are lazy brutes and that Xbox is sinful. Paul says, shut up, Kyle. Xbox doesn't corrupt us. We corrupt Xbox because our hearts use it in addictive ways. And it may be very appropriate for some of you to get rid of Xbox if it becomes addicting. But the real issue is not the box. The real issue is the user, the heart of the user. Another example, I've been guilty of saying that romantic comedies are always bad and should be avoided. And then Paul says, shut up, Kyle. Have you seen You've Got Mail? And if watching romantic comedies makes you dissatisfied with your singleness or dissatisfied in your marriage, then it may be very appropriate for you to ban them. But rom-coms aren't sinful in and of themselves. To the clean, everything is clean. Now, can the same argument be used for pornography? Could we say porn doesn't corrupt us, we corrupt porn? No, because pornography is already a corruption of God's gift of intimacy. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. There are no shortcuts to godliness. It's not a matter of pinning up some rules, reading them, and keeping them. You have to consistently guard your heart from creating rules that you think make God smile on you. I'm going I'm to leave you with a Christ-centered application. So just overall, how can we end this and see Christ in this passage? Britain's darkest hour occurred in the 1940s. Crete's darkest hour occurred in the early A.D. 60s. Britain needed an island war hero. It was Churchill. Crete needed an island war hero. It was Titus. 
Around 2,000 miles separated the islands and around 2,000 years separated the men. I found it interesting how each island dealt with their hero. Churchill saved the island and they kicked him to the curb the next election. Titus saved the island and according to Eusebius, they honored him all of his days. I can just picture him behind the pulpit throwing his V of victory to the false teachers. Churchill led his people through a dark hour. Titus led his people through a dark hour. But neither hour was the darkest hour in human history. That hour, friends, was reserved for Jesus Christ. Long before Churchill defended his island and long before Titus defended his island, Jesus Christ hung on an island. But unlike Titus and Churchill, he had more to offer than blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He had divinity. He had righteousness. He had atonement. He fought this battle not with an army of Brits like Churchill or an army of pastors like Titus. No, he fought this battle alone. An army of one. One of the famous, one of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes, it's, it's not quoted often because frankly it's disgusting, and it shows a little measure of doubt in Churchill. I brought the quote because I wanted to share it with you. This is it. Churchill said, If this long island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. Faith family, the Churchill story didn't end that way. And neither did the Titus story. But the Jesus story did. He hung on a cross, choking upon his own blood. But he did not flag or fail. He brought his redeemed soldiers to victory. Three days later, he defeated death and sin and walked out of the tomb. And I like to picture him throwing the V for victory. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.